Hello and welcome back to Beyond Boards, a podcast dedicated to the actions and interests of skaters beyond skateboarding. My guest today, John Rattray, does not need much of an introduction. John grew up and started skating in Aberdeen, Scotland in the late 80s and had an impeccable skate career, riding for Blueprint Skateboards in its heyday, then for Zero Skateboards until he retired from pro skating in the early 2010s. In 2013, he left Southern California with his wife Philippa for Portland, Oregon and transitioned into a career in marketing at Nike. Since 2017, John has dedicated a lot of time and energy to raising awareness around mental health issues through the Good Egg and the Why So Sad campaigns. So here's my conversation with John. I hope you'll enjoy it. done is I've tried to focus on the friends questions and kind of use them as the bulk for the interview and so I reached out to a bunch of friends of yours uh, people that have been you know like on your skate journey basically and uh, that have kindly provided uh, surprise questions for you so what I'd like to do is just kind of go through them together and these will allow you to share some stories on specific times in your career in life if that sounds okay with you awesome sounds good And before we, we get into that, I, I'd like to try and just give a very quick summary of your life and career. So you're originally from Scotland, from Aberdeen, but you live in Portland. You've been living in Portland for quite a few years now. You grew up in the 80s in Aberdeen. You started skating around 9 or 10 years old. Your father, unfortunately, passed away when you were 13. And I'm just mentioning that because it's, uh, it was, I guess, a, a pivotal moment in your life and something that kind of resonated throughout your life later. And so you were skating and stuff, and then you went and lived in Glasgow for a few years where you studied physics. You did a Bachelor of Science over there. And while you were doing that, you were getting sponsored. You were also, I think, working at a skate shop over there called Clan Skates for a few years. And you were sponsored by Panic, which became Blueprint, for which you turned pro. All of this is between like 95 and 99, 2000, more or less. And so during that time, you also traveled to the States for the first time, I believe, at least for skating. So that must have been the summer of 99. You did a trip between Canada and the States where you filmed that famous uh, rookies part in 411, which was filmed by Anthony Claraval and uh, Ewan Bowman. And you've mentioned in other interviews that you experienced at that time or maybe right after. I'm not sure at what point exactly, but you experienced your first like uh, episodes of depression and uh, suicidal ideation around that time. And um, so eventually you, you moved to the States because you had started writing for Zero. I didn't mention, but you were also like shoe wise, you were skating for Circa back in the day. And you went on that famous video radio tour that uh, was a Transworld video back in the day. And I think it came out in 2001. And so during that trip, uh, Jamie Thomas offered you to write for Zero. I think he had uh, been uh, like offering this to you for a, a little bit. And uh, the combination of him and Adrian Lopez, like asking you to get on the team, eventually convinced you to jump ship and, and leave Blueprint. And then you moved to the States, so in the early 2000s. I'm not sure exactly what year, but I guess around 2003 or 2002. And so then you had like this prolific career until like the early 2010s. You were pro for zero. You skated for different like shoe brands and stuff throughout the years. Aside from your pro skating career, you were also a contributing writer for numerous mags, like the Skateboard Mag, Thrasher, Transworld, between like basically the early 2000s until 2012, around there. 
And in 2011, unfortunately, your sister Katrina committed suicide. And uh, that was obviously a very tragic and pivotal moment. And around that time, I'm not sure exactly at what point, but you also went through a knee surgery and you had a lot of stuff that was happening all at, at once. And uh, that kind of precipitated your decision to retire from pro skating. And so you started working at New Balance Numeric when they started their program. I think you were the first TM over there for a little bit, for like a year or something. And eventually you got an opportunity to work at Nike. And by that point, you had moved to Portland with your wife. And since then, you've been working for Nike. Nike SB, but also like the global Nike uh, brand on various positions in marketing and strategic planning. And since 2017, you've been also working around mental health. You did a lot of things around that subject. You've been uh, doing the Why So Sad campaign. I think that started in 2017. You organized the first event around that time called The Good Egg, where you cycled. I'm not sure from where to where exactly, but it ended up on the coast, on the Atlantic Ocean, uh, the Pacific Ocean, sorry. And on that trip, I think John Cardiel was part of the crew. The point was like to do a, a 100 mile cycling and end up by doing a neck plant on a transition. And that was all to raise funds for the Scottish Association for Mental Health. And you've done similar initiatives later, like this trip and other stuff, all of them to raise awareness around mental health and um, suicide prevention and to raise money for associations that uh, are in that realm. And this year, earlier this year, I think it came out in January, Nike has been released a video called the Why So Sad comic video that was like a video adaptation of a comic that you had been working on with um, your friend John Horner, who illustrated the whole thing. I think that might have come out a few years earlier in Thrasher, and that was like the, the video adaptation of it, and you were the narrator of the video. And uh, yeah, I guess that covers at least what I was able to find. Is there anything that uh, you feel that I completely missed? or? That was a lot. You got it. We're done. <laughs> well done. There's a lot of research there. No, I think that covers a, a lot of moments in the course of my life from being a kid in Aberdeen, skating, Glasgow, meeting the crew there, working at Clan Skates with Jamie Blair and Justin Mall. And I think you said Panic became Blueprint. I don't know if I would. I think they kept Panic as a brand and changed their folk. They changed the focus to make Blueprint the sort of premier brand. Oh, I see. Okay. For a bit moved the team around a little bit and gave McGee some some remit to drive Blueprint as the main brand there. Okay, okay. I don't want to be the word police. If we do any work in suicide prevention, we tend to try and say we somebody died by suicide rather than they than they committed it. Committed yes. this, this connotations of like super intentional, like bad behavior. And it's like the more you learn about the mechanisms that drive suicidal ideation and attempts, it's you tend to come to the realization that it's not necessarily a rational, logical decision somebody's making. They're making it under the duress of a malfunctioning brain. So yes, exactly. It's hard to call that a clear and rational choice when somebody's brain's doing what it's doing at that point. Yeah. So you say died by as something that happens to people rather than something that they intentionally do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for saying that. That's very, very true. And uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll remember that for sure. It's just a good way of reframing it to help you think through, like, what's really happening there? I talk to friends sometimes about this, and I've done a lot of thinking about thinking, if you like. Mm -hmm. Like, how does thinking work? And then it turns out, especially when you do a bit of, you know, mindfulness is the term that gets thrown around. But when you do a bit of that, sort of even the basics, the whole thing is about learning to notice the process of thinking. And you start to realize a ton of the thoughts that come up in my head 
I'm not intentionally thinking them. They're just happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And when and when you're when you're calm and you're in a good healthy state, then you have the option in your, you know, rational part of your brain to decide which thoughts are worth keeping or which thoughts are you should let go, which are good, which are like dumb, you know. Mm. So, yeah, I think that's that's been an interesting part of the journey of learning about, you know, the like I said, the mechanisms of the worst case scenarios like suicidal ideation. But that's that. Yeah. The Scottish Association for Mental Health recently rebranded. They're now called the Scottish Action for Mental Health. Fun fact. Okay. Does your cousin still work there? I, I read that your cousin Liam uh, had started working yeah. there, I think, after your, your sister um, died by suicide. And uh, that's a part of why you decided to raise funds for that association since you had that connection there. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was always, after Katrina passed, I was always thinking about what could I do, you know, and it's like... You know, ideally, I would go back in time with a flux capacitor and a DeLorean or however you do it. <laughs> or what a Bill and Ted's have. Did they have a telephone box? You know, like there's multiple ways that I've seen people travel through time. I'd go back and I would do a, uh, you know, bachelor's in psychology and psychiatry and neuroscience. And then I would become like a practicing therapist or whatever. But yeah, time and money and life being what they are, it's like, oh, well, I guess I have a platform for with a small audience and I have a You know, I like to learn things as best I can. So I'll just try and do some advocacy in the space and at least help. There's plenty professional. I say there's plenty professional people out there doing working in this field. There's still not enough. Like there's not enough yeah. psychologists, psychiatrists and therapists to handle the demand. But anyway. Mm. I'm sure there's probably other people that uh, are doing that work. Of course, the Ben Ramers Foundation and some other initiatives out there are promoting those messages. But yeah, at least from my perspective, you've become like an ambassador of that movement, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm just, I've managed to get through a chunk of it myself, done a bit of introspection and trying to understand how it all worked inside me and done some learning, done some as much formal learning as I can and then like extracurricular just reading around the subject there's a few books I would recommend if people are interested in going on that learning journey but yeah then sharing the knowledge the point keeping it to yourself and so that we can become a bit more literate when it comes to this subject that's so easy to shy away from because it's feels scary at first yes mm -hmm. even though when you're not when you're not in crisis and you're like learning about this subject it's just fascinating And that's the way I kind of look at it. When you're in crisis, it's like, okay, let's sort this out. What's going on? How can we get you to a doctor? How can we get you on whatever needs to be prescribed if that's the course of action to take? What's been happening, you know? And then you, once you're through crisis, it's sort of, you know, you, I sort of have described it as like, now I went through that experience I had and I felt like I was stumbling through the dark. They've said, you say knowledge is knowledge gives you power over things. It's like, you know, building a bit of a of a knowledge base around how these things work. And there's plenty of knowledge at this point around it. it provides somewhat of a map to the landscape that is the human psyche, if you mm -hmm. like. That's a question I was keeping for later, actually. But you just mentioned that if you could go back in time, you would you would maybe like consider doing a psychology degree. And I, I think you've mentioned this in other interviews that that was something I don't know if you were contemplating it seriously, like doing that, getting a degree in psychology. But uh, is that something you think you might do in the future or is or do you feel like you wouldn't want to maybe like do a full three or five year course in, in psychology at this point? I don't know. It always goes through my head. It's more just like the time commitment. Like, I don't really want to commit to something unless I feel like I can fully commit to it. Yes. 
And I live in the United States, so money becomes an issue. I don't know if that's an issue in the United Kingdom at this point, probably. Don't know. Mm -hmm. But either way, I just would love to. Just I'm not. It doesn't feel like I could commit to that right now. So at the, yeah. this point, I'm the armchair psychologist reading as much as I can yeah. when I can. No, and you're doing a great job at it. I mean, I was watching this video I mentioned earlier, the Why So Sad uh, Nike SB piece that you did with John Horner and Dr. Bruce Perry and Push to Heal and stuff. That video is really good. I recommend anybody who's listening to this to check it out because it's very easy, accessible, and it really, I don't know, it resonated very strongly with me. Like I, I, I really could, I don't know, it just made a lot of sense. And I was like, oh, like that's why in some situations I, I have these kind of awkward re reactions that I don't really know where they come from and maybe there's some explanation there you know so uh, yeah that was an excellent piece and I, I think that piece that's like uh, the culmination at least to that point of all the work you've done all the reading you've done all the conversations you've had with uh, different people in that whole field of mental health but uh, yeah that, that video piece is really excellent thanks yeah I mean yeah that, I like that the way that that came together like you said it was a culmination of understanding at that point so it did a did the best job we could do at the time. I think it did a pretty good job mm -hmm. of kind of summarizing, like you said, some of the work that Dr. Perry, all, a lot of the work that Dr. Perry's entire career has has built up to. Mm -hmm. He's pretty renowned at this point, worth checking out his resume. But um, And he helped draft that and looked at drafts and helped refine the language. And the model that he put together, the neurosequential model, is super interesting. It sounds super It's kind of intimidating at first when you say that, but then I kind of, I like working with John Horner because yes. like the comic world, the comic world is sort of disarming and you can throw, you can throw science jargon around in the comic world and it feels more approachable. Exactly. Like, yes. Yeah. It just, it, the comic world lends itself to the, you know, this idea of sci-fi and you can have fun with it. Mm -hmm. Like I, I think the, the intro to that comic starts as kind of, Well, it's a comic, so you try and have fun with it and try and find this. The whole why so sad thing is finding a lighthearted way into an intimidating subject. So that yeah. whole project was based on that prerogative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, it starts with like misunderstanding or not really understanding what Freud was talking about when you talk about the subconscious and it's the id and all this. And then it turns out we have a load of neuroscience that now helps us understand exactly what's what where these things are happening in the body and brain and in what order, in what sequence your brain is processing information, which I think is a is kind of a game changer to start to realize, you know, how, how that works. Yeah. Anyway, Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting. And yes, again, uh, I highly recommend all the listeners out there uh, to uh, check out the video. I'll put some links up uh, when this episode comes out. But yeah, I'd like to share maybe with you this first question from Colin Kennedy. So I have a bunch of questions from different people, as I told you, and some are about skating, some are about mental health. We'll be kind of going through different periods of your life. It's not necessarily super chronological. But this first one, again, from Colin Kennedy, a former Blueprint teammate and Nike teammate as well, and just friend, of course. So he said, was the backside nose blunt and Levy halfpipe a significant moment for you or just another day of capturing footage for waiting for the world? <laughs> Thank you, Colin, for such a thoughtful and deep and profound question. <laughs> was it frontside tail? I remember frontside tail slide, back nose blunt. Yes, exactly. I think it was a good day. I, I wanted to do that trick. I love Livy, so that was, it's not pivotal, I don't think. I mean, back nose blunt and Livy half pipe where there's not there's not any coping. It's not like yes, it's a round kind of uh, lip, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it gets a little more. There's a bit more of an edge on the deep end there, the vert. So if it even goes to vert, I don't know. Mm-hmm. All in all, I'm saying in my memory, it, it wasn't that hard at that time. Okay. And so what did he say the other the latter part was was it just another day of collecting footage yes. waiting for the world exactly the answer is yes it was just another day that was like let's get some filler basically okay okay i have another question this one is an audio one yo retre jugger here hope you're well my question for you is uh video radio i mean that era was uh, pretty golden when at least for my generation that transvaal video kind of was different from every, anything else we've seen we followed a tour and you were on this tour next to muscam penny and you know for that time the giants uh, i just want to hear uh, you know how was it to be on that in that project and on that tour daniel daniel stankovic yes yuga yeah the jugabolts uh, <laughs> okay video radio being on that tour what was it like yeah it's like he asked basically how was it to be in that project in on that tour yeah i mean it was at that point i remember being at the stuttgart i think we were there was big crowds of skaters young skater kids and yeah muska was a, was kind of the superstar yeah him and jamie that di- dynamic that they had was really cool i don't know if that I think that was the yeah it was a, a time where I, I really remember the crowds of kids chasing Muska and he's running away and it's just all fun and games and he's running along in my imaginary memory with his Burberry bandana or whatever he was wearing <laughs> at the time and that he got in London it was yeah cool to be on and I don't know when I was on trips like that it was just it was classic tour life it's you know there's up time there's down time you hit demos you try and do the best you can and the crowds were big mm-hmm. um i think the france demo if i'm thinking about where you are was somewhere south of paris a fair bit and all uh, yeah didn't you go to le dôme the big hubbers oh yeah i mean we went yeah i mean we went street skating as much as we could as well and it was i think jogger said it was not like anything at the time and any other videos i guess if he's looking at video radio john Holland and Greg Hunt put that together. Mm-hmm. So they obviously did do a great job and did a great job telling the story. I remember that's like I think Greg had me narrate some of it as well, do little voiceover pieces to stitch it together, which I thought was funny. Mm-hmm. They're American, so they were like, "You have a cool accent. You should do it." <laughs> I think my accent is just pretty weird. So but if they if they thought it would work, then great. Do you remember skating with uh I know Tom Penny uh, ended up on that tour at some point. I don't I don't think he was there for the whole time, but uh maybe he connected with you either in Paris or in another city during the trip. Do you remember skating with him? Yeah, Tom was on it for a bit. I mean, Chad was friends with Tom because they right. lived together. I think they had a place in San Diego or wherever they wherever they were somewhere in Southern California, so they were they were homies from then. Tom came out met us in Paris and I think took the train out to Germany with us because I remember he had a couple of really good clips at that under the bridge spot if it was a bridge I can't remember he used to car under the bridge spot that had the little mini ramp and this sort of slightly downhill run up to the hip he does a nolly uh Oh, Nolly hard flip. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I remember Tom being on it. I don't know that we we chatted a little bit. Uh, it's a long time ago now. I can't really remember. Over 20 years ago. Yeah. That was cool though. Okay, I have a few questions from Anthony Claraval. Mm. 
The first one is, did you think that going on a homie skate holiday to Canada and the States would end up with you getting on Circa and Zero? I did not think that. No, I did not think that. I had some money, I think, from my student loan, uh, my final student loan. I, we used it to get to Canada to visit some friends, skate friends who we'd met, who had also traveled. Mm -hmm. I was on Blueprint at the time. There's probably some video where I say Blueprint skateboards forever. In yeah, my head. yeah. I was like, I'm down, I'm down for life. And I think that's in know. the 411, yes. The intro yeah. of the 411 or something, yeah. I like to say that what I meant was Blueprint Skateboards, I think, would be awesome if Blueprint Skateboards as a brand went on forever, not necessarily with me on it. Yes, yes, okay. Well, it'll be fine. I thought it would be fine with me or not. Yeah. So, and, and they were. Yeah, because like we, we just mentioned um, the video radio tour, but that's when Jamie convinced you to get on Zero, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we, we roomed a couple of times and... I think he'd been asking, he asked me to be, to, if I'd be interested in staying in San Diego and meeting some of the team and skating, like when I was at the first action sports retail trade show in San Diego that I ever went to. Mm -hmm. That was all just still really overwhelming though. I didn't, like to Claraval's point, did I think that all of that would culminate in a pro career? No, I wasn't thinking that at all. I was like still in the mindset of like, I'll go home after this trip and apply for internships at Shell Oil or something like that and, you <laughs> okay. know, have a career. Like, it was not on the cards at all. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you mentioned that I had somewhat of a depressive episode or a pretty bad depressive episode in my early 20s, it, mm -hmm. I'd say the catalyst for that was the fear of... Or I didn't even real. You don't realize what it is at the time. It's just this fear of, like, what does the future hold? Because I needed to make a clear decision for myself about which path am I following here. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was part of it, plus just, you know, the anxiety of the unknown life in front of you after university. Now you're challenged with being an adult, and, you know, you haven't quite managed to be an adolescent mm -hmm. and all that, so... That's where I was at that point when Jamie first asked me, and then it took it took a year after that before I decided. So I, like okay. I said, I don't like to decide to do things unless I feel like I am 100% committed to them. Okay, the next question from Anthony is, your 411 rookies happened pretty randomly from what I remember. The interview with the mask was definitely different, and the nose blunt <laughs> at Clipper was the cherry on top. That part was your introduction to the American skate scene. Do you trip on how something so unplanned can change the trajectory of your life? No. Do I trip on, on how unplanned things can change the trajectory of life? No. What's really planned at the end of the day, even though I yeah. kind of make plans for a living? Like you, you, yeah, and certainly at that point in my early 20s, I wasn't really planning very much. And I, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of examples right now, but yeah, I think that a lot of life on Earth happens at random. And yeah, we just we just go along with it and then yeah try and take credit when things go right <laughs> <laughs> do you remember how, how this opportunity to film a rookie's part for 411 how, how did that happen was it uh anthony or ewan that uh offered that to you or that was 100 well i'm not gonna say 100 i don't know in my memory it's a it's all you and bowman we met up with you and i think we met with you and vasilia skate camp it might not have been vasilia okay But it was the skate camp that was out in the central California or wherever it is. Out towards Yosemite and these places that are really quite beautiful. They had that skate camp. Mm -hmm. And Ewan was working there. And I think we went and I think we gave him a ride home in the van that we had for the road trip that we were on. Me and my skate friends from Scotland. And Ewan was just classic Bowman. <laughs> It's like probably um, 
he'd been given a pep talk about the opportunities that there are in the skate industry from Bod Boyle. And oh, yeah. Took that to heart and told me, like, you've got an opportunity in front of you. You need to film a 411 rookies while you're here. Mm-hmm. And then he, I think he put me in touch with Anthony, and I think he, Ewan was still working at Noah's Bagels at the time, so he couldn't come out and skate that much. But Anthony was was filming more full time at the, that point, so right. I just kept meeting up with Anthony and Joe Brooke at the time, and shot photos and filmed as much as we could in the couple of weeks that we had in in and around San Francisco. I think most of it was San Francisco. Yeah, there's a lot of clips uh, in SF, yes. There's the Clipper one, and uh, I don't know what that spot is called, but the one with the, the big wide blocks where you do a manual kickflip, or kickflip manual, and then a nollie flip from the thing to the ground. I don't know if, if you know what I'm talking about. It's, yeah, it's like by the, by the ocean. Yeah, they call those bay blocks. Bay blocks, bay blocks, that's it. Mm-hmm. It was down the, yeah, you carry on down the, the waterfront from, like, Embarcadero and Pier 7. You keep going down and they're, they all ran along there. People skated those for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, are they still, people still skate them, do they? Or no? I think so, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing Tyshawn doing a back nose blunt on one of those things, like, uh, right. and, like, Tiago did a switchback tail or something. Uh, it's like, uh, there's some fucked up tricks going on these days on these, yeah, yeah. On this spot. I yeah. feel like maybe a shot skated them not that long ago. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what he did, but he definitely did something gnarly there. Okay, the next one from Anthony is, I remember after your 401 part came out, Jamie Thomas hit me up about you. Hungry to know more about you and get you on zero. Prior to zero, your style was more fresh than Hesh, in my opinion. Was there any feeling of Jamie changing your style like he did with Cole? Not to bag on zero and Jamie at all, <laughs> but did the brand resonate with you prior to skating for them? I thought that was an interesting question because you were an odd, uh, I guess, an odd choice for Zero. I mean, I mean since they're like the gnarly Gap and uh, Handrail guys and you you were a bit more like finesse style and nice track selection and stuff. You, you of course, did gnarly tricks as well, but like with a different, a different approach, I guess. Yeah, I assume that's what they were looking for because they had hand they had handrails covered. Mm-hmm. So I but I liked handrail skating. Yeah, it definitely resonated with the brand. I thought it was super cool. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like I liked the minimalist vibe of what he was doing. Like actually, in fact, the name Zero is sort of lends itself to minimalism. Yes, <laughs> but that and then and then um, yeah. I mean, I grew up listening to metal. Uh, Iron Maiden Killers was the first album I ever bought on audio cassette with my own money so yeah i have a broad uh love of music and then this funny clarabelle will not ever let that drop he's always going in on this one <laughs> and it's like i don't know i just didn't i stopped i didn't cut my hair for a while mm-hmm. you get in you, you know you you fit into a certain extent so but i don't think I, i don't think i went out and bought like vintage van halen t-shirts <laughs> or something that was like you know not not my deal i mm-hmm It doesn't feel like you, you changed your appearance like Cole kind of did. Uh, it was a bit more uh, visible, I guess, in his case. I don't remember the board sponsor you wrote for before. Uh, maybe Enjoy, I don't remember which one it was. But uh, you went from Brooklyn to Zero. But it doesn't seem like you changed either your clothes or even the way you skated. You kind of stuck to what you had been doing. Yeah, I mean, I bought clothes. I think I got I skated in jeans, button-up shirts, some cardigans. <laughs> like... <laughs> Maybe wore more black t-shirts and like I quite liked having long hair because then when you do tricks, your hair like bounces around and it looks cool in footage. So sure. fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I never grew it all out long like Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden either. Like that's going too far. 
And in fact, if I think about it, when I rode for Blueprint in like, I remember being in second year at university and not cutting my hair for a while. So that was already happening. So I don't know what Clarabelle's talking about. Plaid button-up shirts and jeans. That's pretty much it. He also asked, uh, I have a few more from him. He said, how did you go from being the first TM at New Balance Numeric to Nike? And so I think that was around the time when you moved to Portland, right? Uh, I'm not sure if you moved to Portland before you started working at New Balance or after, but... Uh... Yeah, I mean, the New Balance job was interesting. I helped Seb start to put the team together and manage the first couple of seasons worth of... Because um, they were working in, in seasons as product shipments were coming in. I think they had problems with the first product shipment anyway, or production quality or something. That was the launch of the numeric brand, right? Like uh, they, they weren't doing the skate program before. No, that was the, the start of it. So it was more than just team managing. It was like working with Russell and R2 on creative direction and, you know, working with the mags on ad placement and the social media stuff. So the whole thing and then plus or, you know, organizing what you, you know, the bits and pieces, the logistical bits and pieces for skate trips in order to get the video stuff together. Mm -hmm. We did that, you know, the first video of Place in the Sun in L.A. and then second video piece, <laughs> second video piece in, in Vancouver where we, um, we did this sort of match cut editing Joe Pease and I had been on a tear kind of just doing funny little video projects and got super psyched on match cut edits. So that became an entire project. Mm -hmm. Did all of that and was living in Portland at the time anyway. And it was like the New Balance gig was a part-time thing. I wasn't making ends meet financially. Nike SB at the time was looking for somebody to help with their digital marketing stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Mark White Whiteley hit me up at the time to ask if I'd be interested in applying. So I applied and got that role then and just have done various things um, at Nike ever since. It's been a super rad, interesting career journey to learn the ropes of working at a bigger place like that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So that, I mean, it was just widely reached out, if that's the answer to yeah, like how, how yeah. question. <laughs> yeah, and it was, uh, it was local to where I was living anyway. Mm -hmm. It helped me actually properly pay the bills and was, you know, an interesting, just an interesting opportunity that didn't seem like it might come up again. So yeah, yeah, true. His next question is, you relocated from Scotland to the US to make it in skateboarding. Do you think it would have been possible to stay living in Scotland and still make it? I was thinking about this earlier, but I guess at that time it would have been very hard because there was no social media, there was no YouTube in the late 90s, early 2000s. Of course, it's much easier today. Easier, I don't know, but it's like more accessible. But uh, yeah, around that time, I guess if you didn't go to California, at least every now and then it was maybe difficult to uh, have a pro career. Uh, yeah, I think it would have been difficult to do, to have the career I had. Yeah. I mean, uh, I wouldn't say I ended up, my career was particularly lucrative or anything. I'm not retired by any means. <laughs> I don't know who goes through a skate career and, and ends up with a comfortable retirement out of it. I don't know that that happens, but. Not yet. Yeah. Maybe Nigel will. <laughs> possibly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that it would have been, no, I think it wouldn't have been easy. And I remember, I think the deal I had through Savier was contingent on moving to California. So I had to live oh, out there for a bit. Okay. For the people who are listening, Savier was the was linked to Nike, right? Was that before Nike SB started? Or was it a parallel yeah. program? I'm not too sure. I think it was before. It was before. Yeah, it was before. And then I'm, it's a long time ago as well. I can't actually remember it, if it over, I think it overlapped a little bit. Because I remember seeing like uh, Stefan Janowski and BA and uh, Tim O'Connor, I think all rode for uh, Xavier before uh, most of them went to Nike. 
Right. I uh, yeah, I went on a good, a fun rad trip with Brian. Uh, Stefan was not there, but it was Brian and Brad, and then Mike Carroll and Rick Howard and O'Mealy mm. and Aaron Mesa all down to Australia. That was one of the co- the coolest, funnest skate trips I did. That's a great crew, yeah. <laughs> Okay, he has one last question. He said, a higher percentage of Blueprint pros went on to global TM slash brand manager roles than almost any other brand I can think of. Shire, Baines, Vaughn, Colin, yourself. If you include Panic, then Ewan as well. Why do you think that is? If I include Panic, then Ewan as well. Ewan was on Blueprint before I was. So I think Claravel needs to fact check himself. <laughs> um, why is that? I don't know. That's an interesting observation. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> the, the British education system at the time, I don't know if any, any one of those people would agree with me that that's part of it. I feel like the school I went to was pretty good, mm-hmm. but I don't know that anyone else feels that way. Uh, maybe just being from outside of the United States, you have a more of a desire to stay in the industry or less of a... I don't, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> it's, an interesting, it's an interesting observation, though. And he finished just by saying, please tell John I treasure the trips and sessions we went on. He's still one of my favorite skaters, and I hope he's doing well. Awesome. Back at him. Back at you, Clarabelle. Okay, then I have a question from Mark Baines, another Blueprint former teammate. So he said, I remember when you left Blueprint for Zero, and I remember being gutted you were leaving but also stoked that you'd been picked up by a brand like Zero. It seemed like you were a level above the rest of us. I remember thinking that after the nose blown down clipper. Anyway, what was your thought process when you got approached by Jamie back then, and was it a move you're still happy to have made with the gift of hindsight? Oh, yeah. Well, I told you that earlier. My thought process took a year of, like, from ASR trade show, whenever it was. Then I had to have essentially a sort of nervous breakdown and hole up at my mom's house with depression, go to the doctor, get prescribed, whatever it was. It flew oxetine at the time, got through that. Uh, I think went back out to San Francisco on a trip with Oliver Martin and Wick Warland, which I always think is funny going on a trip with two photographers and no filmer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we did that that way. That was interesting, but maybe Oliver remembers. But we uh, did quite a lot still on Blueprint for that whole year. Oh, we hadn't finished filming Waiting for the World either when Jamie first sort of approached me. So we had to finish that. So yeah, first of all, I had to finish things that needed done. Like we needed to film Waiting for the World before yes. I got on Zero. And then we did that, premiered it. I can't even remember if I was skating. I think it was skating circus and Waiting for the World the whole time, I think. And then I had to, and then I was I was living in the, God, where was I? I can't remember. I cannot remember how it went down. <laughs> All I know is at some point I ended up on that circuit trip, video radio. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Jamie asked me to get on then. And at that point, I'd been to Slam City Jam with Vaughn and McGee and seen Lopez. And I think I said this before in an interview, but Lopez also asked if I would ride for zero. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's when I was like, oh, the, there's actually the team is talking about this. So. Yeah, it's not just Jamie. Yeah, that, that made it feel more like they want me there. Yeah. That clinched it because, I mean, I was leaving a team that was Blueprint, that was the homies from the UK. We'd been on the road together. Mm-hmm. You know, I slept on each other's mum's couches. <laughs> you know, it's like that level of you grew up together and had each other's backs. Yeah. So leaving that, leaving that was tough. That definitely was part of my thought process mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. sure. Um, and there was never that 
I don't know that there was ever that true camaraderie with the whole team on Zero at, at that point either. I was tight with Mumford. I think we had sort of shared heritage from him being from Oz and me being from oh, the yeah. UK. There's like a bit of a, a shared cultural kind of thing there. But it was more about like making that decision to, you know, pursue it as a career. So that changes the dynamic anyway. Yeah. And I, mo- and I moved out there with, with Philippa. We got married and stayed together and moved out together. So that changed the life situation as well, where there was just a different different focus on, on what's most important. Mm-hmm. So maybe not always just hanging out with the homies and skating. There's more to life than that as well. And you start to balance things out. Mm-hmm. Some of that's hindsight. Some of that was a thought process at the time. And then what do you say? You're, you grew up in, you're French. Je ne regrette rien. Je ne regrette rien. Je ne regrette rien. Yes, yes. Like Edith Piaf says. Mm-hmm. Very true. I mean, you can't really. You're you're depending on you know what, what what happened to you. Your brain will try and make you feel bad about all these regrets, but they're gone. They're gone in the wind. So yeah, need to no need focus to on, what's, on Yeah, yeah. Focus on what's here and now, and count your blessings. Learn what you learned, and try and enjoy the the moment that we're in. Okay, then I have a few questions from Casper uh, van Lierup, who used to work at Nike from Holland. But I believe he lives in the States as well. Maybe he lives in Portland, I'm not sure. So he asks, after being in the States for uh, many, many years, how do you experience living in America? Do you consider Portland home? And would you ever move back? Good question, Casper. It's one that he probably, I'm sure Casper wrestles with it, you know, or ruminates on it or thinks about that one too, being far away from home and far away from, you know, my mom and my niece and family and old friends. Mm -hmm. I consider Portland home, yes, partly because I now have a 10-year-old son called Ivor who is a Portlander and who goes to school here. And for me, moving away from here at this point would be something I don't want to do because I don't want to disrupt his childhood. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I understand. If I could pay one thing forward, it would be to not have a disrupted childhood. So I'll do my best to give him some stability and mm. have a fun, nice time as a kid in a home time. But yeah, I think Portland's a great place. I like the Pacific Northwest. I like Portland. I speak to young people. I say young people, people in their 20s that move here. And mm-hmm. Portland's not the, you know, action-packed town for young people that maybe Manhattan is or oh, yeah. other big cities. But, but I think it's great. I go ride my bike, go hiking. Yeah, it's, a, you know, my kids growing up here, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He asked at the end, would you ever move back? Is that something like uh, in the future? Do you think you would see yourself maybe one day uh, going back to uh, the UK? Yeah, I don't know. The opposite of je ne regrette rien. I don't know what the French is, but I don't know the future. So I, can't, I don't know. I would, yeah, I would if the circumstances allowed it and it felt like the right move at the time once Ivor's a bit older and there was some, you know, reason or thing drawing me back. Mm-hmm. Being able to make a living is, is one of the things that I don't know what I'd do, but that's, you know, you solve that as you go. But yeah, right, right now, no, but in the future, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So I guess I have no crystal ball. He asked the last thing, Casper, he said, looking back at your skate career, what area do you feel is your highlight, both from an experience perspective as well as from what you are most proud of? I don't know. It's because you're a different person in each era. And I don't really think about my skate career all that often to really... He'd say, what, he says, what's the highlight? I mean, waiting for the world was a highlight, getting that done yeah. and like defining Blueprint as like a s- solid and respected brand that is not rooted in America and is rooted in the UK. That was a cool, a cool thing to be a part of. Mm-hmm. 
zero videos i mean dying to live getting that part done was was a defining moment mm-hmm. there's i mean it's all that one was a bit sort of like of a for me not a letdown but it was like that's the wrong word it was just i got injured i messed my ankle up skating a rail in barcelona right before like when we still had a month or a couple of months to film so just had to kind of like be done with the part before being done with the part if you like yeah still came out good yeah yeah oh for sure and then i don't, I don't know other highlights i'd say learning 540s was a was a highlight landing a 540 you know you got your sort of what they call the bucket list type stuff yeah yeah, yeah. that what year did you do then, the first one do you remember it was on one of the king the early king of the roads uh oh yeah 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 That's you know true. so it was like oh five or oh six yeah mid, mid 2000s yes okay um but then like filmed one for a video that ended up being in the friends montage and one of the zero video the lesser spotted zero videos i think that the promo in 06 yeah that would have been it so okay must have learned them and must have learned them right around then mm-hmm. that's a highlight and then then this sort of i'd say what the wise was sad trips from recently like learning sad plants that was a highlight as well more more recently all right i'll have you listen to this next one hey quentin this is joel this is a question for john rashray uh, what was your favourite zero trip, and what was your favourite blueprint trip? And describe how the two were different. All right, cheers, man. Hope you good. Joel Curtis, man, that's these are these are tough questions because it's like a lifetime ago. It feels like yeah. I'd say, who favourite zero trips is anything that had Keegan and Alyssa Steamer on it, and favourite blueprint trips were I think the filming trips we did to Barcelona were always amazing and fun because it was like just awesome Barcelona in the yeah before it blew up yeah and I think we did wait I feel like we did that after waiting for the world though we did that for like first broadcast and I was probably skating zero boards at that point and just hanging out so it's not really a blueprint trip I was on blueprint. Kind of. I was on yeah. blueprint. I was on blueprint when we did this random trip to Italy to skate in a contest in Yesolo, and it was me, Paul Shire, Carl Shipman, and Jason Dill. That was an interesting oh, wow. and fun trip. We ended up like playing a game of football with the locals. I won the contest and so got a couple of million lira and bought like a snakeskin belt and a white fedora and was just living <laughs> that sort of like weirdo, weirdo young skater life. Wow. Um, <laughs> And then beyond those two, any trip with Diego the Bucciari was always and is always awesome. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Did you ride for similar brands than he did? Because he wrote for Toy Machine, but... Uh... Diego and I were on Osiris shoes oh, together yes, for Osiris. a couple of years. And Diego's probably the reason I rode for that brand for a couple of years. Plus, there was a paycheck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was Diego and Jerry Sue, and there was like... Yeah, there was some rad people. Like, what was that video, Subject to Change? Uh, you had a, a part in there? I didn't. I don't know if I was in Subject to Change. We did one after that, which was called Feed the Need. We had. Oh, maybe maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. Yes, okay. Yeah. The next one is from Dan McGee. So he said, I guess the one question that always nags me after watching his Raymer's Foundation interviews is that around the time we would be filming Waiting for the World or going on trips afterwards, he said he was suicidal. But naively, I don't think any of us had any idea of how serious it was. Being young, we put it down to John going through a bad patch, but he was still very sociable and jovial for a lot of the time. Was there a large element of masking happening at the time to disguise his suicidal feelings? And how would he advise his younger self and younger peers to address it now? Oh, that's a 
great and interesting question, but it's it it's hard because our the way that we remember things is not the same as the way we experience them in the moment. It's like our memory our memories compress things, mm. and you know there's mental shortcuts that the brain makes. So I'd need to you know to really know you need to like journal at the time and consult what you said at the time to know kind of yeah. what was happening. My instinct, like going through it and thinking through how it works, is you no. Know, like a lot of the time on those blueprint trips, I was dealing with like anxiety and didn't know what it was and muscling through it, but not necessarily experiencing suicidal ideation at that time. The suicidal ideation I had was specifically like coming out of a trip that Colin and I went on in SF, and there was just it was the second ASR trade show I'd been at. And it was okay. really overwhelming. There was a lot going on there. And I ended up just, you know, culminating in, in essentially having a bit of a, a breakdown, feeling yeah. like out of my social comfort zone, not knowing what was happening in the future. A bunch of different stuff was happening. And so that suicidal ideation part was very specific to that. And then it, the feelings and thoughts kept rattling through my head for a couple of weeks after I got home and just stayed at my mom's house until ultimately my sister took me to the doctor and I was didn't oh, yeah. I didn't even at that point verbalize the fact that I was having suicidal thoughts I don't think the doctor just listened to my sister explain what had been happening mm-hmm. and said I don't like to prescribe things and it sounds to me like you have a decision to make in your life that could help you get through the situation that you're you're in emotionally right now but here's some fluoxetine do these for 2 weeks until come back and see how you're feeling <laughs> and so i think i think some of the t- getting things back in a bit of my own control taking some controlled action helped get through that and then Getting some some distance and perspective on what I needed to do in life decision-wise helped. And, you know, getting back into an environment where I had a trusted crew, family and friends helped. And it all happened over time once I got, you know, a handle on my own situation. But, the yeah, the, the, the suicidal ideation happened very specifically then. Not necessarily when I was on, like, filming trips with Dan and sleep right, on the couch yes. and in London there it was like fine you just you deal with the anxiety that you have dealt with your your whole adolescence it's just it kind of all came to a head at that one trip so yeah 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 okay. that's kind of how that that's how that played out and that's I think that's fairly accurate to memory and uh he asked like how would you advise maybe younger peers to address something similar now do you have maybe a word of advice to hand out in that regard Yeah, it's advice is difficult to set different it's a bit different for everyone. I think if you're know know that if you're experiencing suicidal if thoughts of suicide are coming into your head, that's a serious thing and it's not it's not something that is necessarily, you know, those are not necessarily like true thoughts that you need to act on. Mm-hmm. You can talk with trusted people that you are struggling. It's it can be worth voicing the fact that you're having suicidal thoughts. It's Like I said, I don't like to advise too much. It's different for everyone, but I think getting to a family doctor is a good starting point and know yeah. that the thoughts and feelings like that are temporary and you can get through it. And yeah, they're based on just being in a, a bad physiological condition that is having an adverse effect on the way that your brain's working just right now and you can get through it.
Okay, so this next one is from uh, Skin Phillips. So he asked, who's the best skater to come out of Scotland? And how have you tolerated Ewan for so long? And when are you going to come visit me in Wales? Oof, I can't, I don't know what the answer is to the third one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. if I had a teleportation device, I'd go there tomorrow or today. For sure. To Wales, um, that'd be fun. Maybe in, uh, yeah, next time I plan a big trip, if I have time to do that, that would be cool. Go around and, and visit all old friends all around the place. Um, Ewan, I mean, Ewan is just a, a force of nature that I don't get to see often enough. And I just think that I feel like the world is a better place with Ewan in it. So hopefully get to see him again soon as well. Where does Ewan live? I'm not sure where he's based. Uh, I think he's, he, last time I checked, he was in the Sacramento area. Okay. And so, yeah, do you have maybe a favorite skater from Scotland that comes to mind? Is there someone that sticks out? Um, I don't know, because best is just subjective. Of course. Depends how you're, depends what we think is good. Mm -hmm. I don't like to play favorites either. Uh, I mean, I like Colin Kennedy. I think Colin Kennedy is one of the best. So we'll say Colin. That's funny because he said he's going to say Colin Kennedy for sure. <laughs> nice. And I don't know if he still, does he still work at Nike with you? I think so. He works, yeah, he works at Nike. He works in what they call sports marketing in the Europe office. Okay. All right. So the next question is from Eric Swisher, another former Nike colleague. And uh, for me, the best skateboarding interviewer out there by far. So he said, kind of a heavy question, but as a friend, I know you struggled with your sister's tragedy for years and years, and rightfully so. It was something that you might only bring up after several pints, as well as a subject we knew to never breach on our own and to handle with the utmost sensitivity. What was the turning point for you personally in being able to talk about this openly and using it as a springboard for so many positive efforts going forward. And if this has already been covered, tell us the significance of the seagull. Love you, buddy, and proud of you. Nice. Um, yeah, it's probably been covered. It was a confluence of factors that... I mean, one of them was the fact that, you know, the internet evolved to the point where there was these platforms or services like Just Giving where it was you were able to like then be an independent fundraiser really easily. Mm -hmm. So that's something that the individual people can do in order to contribute to hopefully advancements in fields of their choosing, whatever is sort of important to people. My cousin changed his career path and got a position working for the Scottish Association of Mental Health. He's still a suicide prevention manager for what's now the Scottish Action for Mental Health. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think just enough enough time and distance and a bit of perspective on, you know, the emotional fallout from losing someone so close to you to yeah. something so tragic. There's three things. Mm -hmm. And the need, I hate, it's weird, I sometimes think about all of that and I think about that old Thrasher graphic, Prevent This Tragedy, which I have no idea what the, what the artistic objective of that piece was by whoever made that, but... It would be nice to put some work out in the world that maybe uh, helps people not have the same outcomes as we had. And yeah, what about the significance of the seagull? I was wondering about that. Yeah, that's appeared quite a bit in uh, like all of the um, work you've been doing with um, the Why So Sad mission and stuff. 
Yeah, the sea. I just grew up in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen is a coastal town that has a big seagull population that all would nest in the northeast coast, and now nest in the city as well. Mm-hmm. Use the buildings as cliff sides, and I think that the part of the the interest in seagulls is uh, a motif or whatever was that. It felt like growing up, the seagulls were all always seen by the general populace and even talked about in the local press as somewhat of a nuisance. But I mean, their existence and the way that they proliferated is really a result of human the overspill of human glut, if you will. Yeah. They're like mm-hmm. li- living off spilled chip suppers from drunk people at two in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's how they get by. So it's really um, the fact that they're there flocking around the skies and screaming is is our own fault and it's a reflection of ourselves interesting i never thought about that <laughs> so so there's there's that plus there's a scene in the film harold and maud where harold and maud are sitting looking out to the, the ocean mm-hmm. at some point later in the film and i think it's the scene where harold looks down and he sees a tattoo on maud's wrist and realizes that she was a holocaust survivor so that's a reveal oh, wow okay. and she's referencing the birds that they can see off off on the horizon and I think she talks about Dreyfus and there was the Dreyfus affair back in the mm-hmm. day there was some sort of like you know he was I think he was a political scapegoat at some point and he was interned in a in a prison and she talks about Dreyfus writing about these glorious birds that he would see was it Devil's Island or wherever the prison was and he would see these glorious birds and then years later when he was back in Brittany he realized they had only been seagulls mm. and Maud says but for me they will always be glorious birds so I like that I like the idea of reframing like what the general consensus is about something yes and then sort of seeing the the underlying truth that seagulls are just a really good representation of survival and our human basic survival instincts mm-hmm. and also as a skater growing up certainly in the 90s it always you always felt like you were also seen as a nuisance and vermin in the streets causing ruckus mm-hmm. and so i identified with the seagulls from that respect as well okay so that's the story of the seagulls I was wondering, this is a side question, but uh, how was it working with uh, Eric? Uh, and how, how long did you two actually work together? It was for a few years, I believe, right? Yeah, I think from about 2013 till about 2017 or so. Okay, yeah. Did you know about his, uh, like his work with uh, Chromeball when you met with him? Because 2013, I guess it was still quite early in his uh, interviews and all the stuff he was doing. Yeah, I feel like he had done quite a lot of scanning on his scanner by that point. So there was there was a body of work in existence. Yeah. And yeah, I certainly was aware of the Chromeball incident and thought it was really nicely thought through and, and also um, diligent, mm-hmm. diligent scanning. I think he's still a diligent scanner. When I interviewed him, he, he said he has like PTSD whenever he sees a, a scanner or something. He's like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to look at that thing. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Maybe he's uh, maybe he's finished with scanning. Now. I think so. Yeah, because he, he spent so many hours for so many years, like scanning things every night, every single day. And um, I think he got uh, fed up with it at some point. But uh, yeah, I think you might have shared a question for him when I interviewed him. For some reason, I thought he had interviewed you. I was like, well, for sure he's interviewed John. I'm sure that happened, but I didn't check. And he told me like, no, like I haven't interviewed John. He's like, I can't interview him anymore. We know each other too well or something. Uh, Yeah, I was just wondering what were your thoughts on that? Would you like to do an interview with him maybe one day if he changes his mind or? 
I mean, if he, what do we talk about reframing things? If it was just a conversation and not an interview, that could yeah. be fun. I don't know if I don't know if he uh, prefers to maintain some level of professional distance. Okay, let's do the next one. This one is an audio one. Hey, John, can you talk about skater life? Oh, Diego. Yes, you recognize him. What was his nickname? The the butcher. Correct. Bucieri. Yeah, Diego Bucieri. Um Talk about skater life. Yeah, that's what, that's the skater life. Diego and I would live the skater life quite a bit in Barcelona and then on when we were skating together on skate trips. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much I can really talk about the skater life. The skater life involves always having your board with you. Okay. You know, if you're if you're like going to get in a car and you're going to sit in the passenger seat and get a ride somewhere, then living the true skater life, you wouldn't even put your board in the trunk. You would keep your board between your, you know, in front of you between yeah. your legs, hold on to it. You've always got it. Okay. You take it to the you take it to the bar later. You might stay out all night, you know, and then you have breakfast and you still got your board and you're skating in the morning. You need to get some sleep at some point though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But when you're young, you forget how important that is. So I think, I don't know how else I can describe the skater life and not get in trouble. It's just <laughs> skating at all times is the, is 90% of, of what you care about doing and being a part of. Yeah, always ready for a session, always ready to skate. Okay. Yeah. If you Have, have you interviewed Diego? No, no, but uh, I'd love to interview him as well. Well, you ask, you ask Diego about skater life. <laughs> I will. I will, for sure. All right, then I have a couple questions from Silas Baxter Neal. So he said, ask him about riding his bike across New Zealand on a mountain bike while all his comrades rode road bikes. Actually, about that trip, he's done several biking trips to help raise awareness around mental health. I'm wondering if that trip was an inspiration for those. Uh, yes, that trip was an inspiration. I didn't really ride distance very much before that New Zealand trip. I think I, I bought that. It was a mountain bike frame, but it was kind of like a city, but it's just a bike for general city bike. Mm-hmm. But it had gears and it was the bike I had. So that's what I used. And yeah, I remember Dylan Dow like talking to like talking about my bike or my handlebars or something as if I knew or cared. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, bring it up, bring it up like you should have a drop bar so you can change your grip position as if I gave a shit like you're an expert or <laughs> yeah or care to be and, <laughs> and I was like yeah I, this is my bike and I'll ride it and that's it okay that is just you use what you've got you you play the game with the deck you're dealt exactly like and I think I I think I got that bike with some of the money I got from getting second place at Tampa Pro. And it was a reasonable prize purse at that event, so. What year was that? Do you remember what year you got second at Tampa Pro? Uh, I think it was 2008, but I might be okay. wrong. That sounds about right. I believe that that trip was 09, maybe, or 08, yeah. It was 08, and Silas was skater of the year that year, too. Oh, wow, yeah, okay. And Silas came on it, a few people came on it, and I don't think any of us actually really fully comprehended that we would just be riding bikes the entire time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And not really getting in a van and then camping. And, well, we got a couple of little hotels along the way that helped us, like, warm up and and get a shower. But, yeah, that's the bike I had. I didn't really notice that everybody else had road bikes, did they? I watched the documentary thing. I I couldn't really tell that your bike was different. I was looking at, like, some of the clips and I I, I couldn't really see the... But I don't know anything about bikes, so I was... uh, I'm completely clueless. Yeah, 
But then we went over a bunch of gravel trails, so a bit more mountain bike geometry might be good for that. That looked like a fun trip, though, yeah. It must have been tiring to get into skate sessions after a long day of cycling, but uh, it looked like fun. Yeah, I wondered about that. I think that you use kind of different muscles. It's like yes. slower slower response muscles for cycling, mm-hmm. and then faster reflex muscle tissue for skating. So maybe it balances out somehow. It was a good crew, too. Yeah, I remember there was uh, Chris Haslam was on that thing, uh, Cairo Foster, Silas... Yeah, we had uh, Alex Craig oh, sort yeah. of directing. Filming. We we had uh, Fred Mortan. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Was he filming or shooting photos or, or maybe both? Yeah, Likely both. I think he certainly shot some of the film that was uh, used. And also uh, there was another Zero team writer of yours, um, uh, Keegan, Keegan Sauter. Yeah, Keegan was there. Yeah, it was a good trip. Mm-hmm. And certainly yeah, an inspiration because I ended up continuing to ride that bike and i did not get a road bike until at least 10 years later oh wow so fairly recently yeah yeah the first trip that we did the first cycling trip that we did the good egg was either was it late 2016 or 2017 it might have even been 2016 mm-hmm. when we did the actual the actual trip the actual ride from portland down to the coast i still rode that same bike that i rode in new zealand oh okay the whole way Sick. And Cardiel, Cardiel made a comment about how he was like, I showed up and they all had like town bikes. Yeah, he's like a big uh, bike guy, right? He's been riding bicycles for a while and so he, he knows his shit, yeah. He knows his way around some bicycles, yeah. But he's a good, he's a good sport. He didn't say anything. He just jammed along with us and yeah. thought it was hilarious. Uh, and I have a, a last question from Silas. He said, um, also, I think he may have a funny take on how he's raising his kid in, this, in the U.S., compared to his experience as a child in Scotland? A funny take um, on raising... I don't know. My my main concern with raising Ivor here versus my experience growing up is... I mean, one, one of my main missions as a parent is to, you know, provide him a childhood that's not disrupted by a bunch of chaos. And then, two, the, the, the big thing that's different is... There's not so much extended family here, or there's no extended family here. I grew up with extended family, like my aunt, my grand, my granddad, my cousins, and we just don't we just don't have that here. So yeah. that's I don't know if the trade off is worth it, or is good, or is bad, or what. But we're doing our best. So For sure. I don't know if that's a funny take, but <laughs> I certainly I certainly experience anxious thoughts about his experience growing up as a kid here with us, with no extended family, versus my experience growing up with extended family yeah i mean we do pretty well we have a good little network of friends and um i know a bunch of people through skating that we hang out with and there's kids of similar ages and the network that you start to get through his school is good but i don't know it's different from having options to go to family members house and all that yeah yeah it's maybe a common theme in this stage of human history i don't know all right let's do this next one Hey John, this is Joel Pippis. I've been a fan of your skating since I was young and as an adult, a fan of and thankful for all you've done to support conversations around mental health. With that in mind, what advice would you give to someone who wants to be able to talk about mental health but isn't really sure how to join the conversation, whether inside or outside of skateboarding? Thanks again for all you do. Yeah, thanks Joel. Good question. Um, I would say you start with your own experience I think that mental health is a well mental health and physical health are like not separate yes. issues 
we think of them as separate subject-wise to pull apart complex things. And we tend to think of physical health as like your skeleton and your muscles and your organs, your heart and whatnot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The big macro things that we think of when we think of like mechanical health and then mental health is sort of this thought of as a separate field but it's completely related or it's it's all one system really so it's all health Mm -hmm. but start with your own experience of it so mental health i think is your emotions that's kind of what we would generally term you know or categorize into mental health and your emotions are driven by a bunch of physical processes you got your nervous system your brain's operating in a certain way you know and then deploying neurochemicals and all the rest of it and that creates feelings what we call feelings Mm -hmm. emotional responses based on how much adrenaline or cortisol or dopamine or whatever else is flowing around our system at any given time so i'd say start with your own experience of emotions and then if we're going to think about reading to learn a bit more i'd start with reading Mm -hmm. because it start reading is the best way to get words and sentences that map to the experiences that we have when it comes to my own experience I mean, I lost my sister to suicide, so a few after it was enough time had passed and I could, you know, spend a bit of emotional energy learning about that side of things. I read a book that helped first called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. That's yeah. a, he's a, you know, researcher, a journalist, essentially. He yeah. put together a bunch of research on his own exploration of his own mental health. That's a really good, a good synopsis of kind of where things are and what our understanding is of depression and its causes. It really goes into this idea of social connection and the lack thereof as, as like a central piece of the puzzle. I remember hearing him say somewhere that uh, he coined like a famous sentence that is a uh, connection is the opposite of addiction or something like that. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, he talks about addiction as well. And he talks about, I mean, he talks about addiction in terms of its It's a symptom of emotional dysregulation over, you know, and I think his point he makes about addiction is that you can end up being addicted to substances because it acts as a surrogate for emotional social connections that you're lacking. Mm-hmm. I think that's the long and the short of what he's saying. So he's saying the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. It's something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So Johan Ari's book, Lost Connections, is really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I read Waking Up Alive by Richard Heckler and Waking Up Alive, which it was written in 1994, I think, and it's a, a collection of case studies that Richard Heckler, who was a counselor in the Bay Area um, in California, put together based on his work as a counselor, therapist, and it was a collection of stories of people who had attempted suicide and failed to die and then woken up alive and gone on to process the emotional issues that had led them to be in that crisis state Mm -hmm. where they were experiencing suicidal ideation to the point of attempting and coming through that and coming to terms with you know why they had felt that way in the first place and going on to live healthy and productive lives so it's really hopeful in that hey these feelings and thoughts that you have when you're in total crisis that are suicidal ideation are temporary and you can get through them and identify their sources and grow and learn how to be happy again and live a productive life that's the point of it right. or that's the sort of big the big hopeful takeaway from the the stories because they're pretty harrowing and harsh mm-hmm. obviously people are going through some pretty stressful scenarios in their lives to end up at that point to feeling suicidal yeah 
the interesting things that he observed, like the common themes in all of the case studies were that he pulled out, there was three things. There was extreme family dysfunction, a sense of alienation, and traumatic loss. Those three things were the common themes that he saw cropping up in people's lives. So people were able to, or the patients that he worked with, were able to look back at their lives and think through what had happened to them in the past and identify that these feelings that they were having now were based on things that had been imprinted years ago. Mm -hmm. Or situations that they were in that were triggering and causing extreme stress in the moment to the point where they were driven to feel suicidal. And it was interesting because it was written in 1994 before the Adverse Childhood Experience study was was oh, kicked yeah. off. Yeah. The Adverse Childhood Experience study was conducted over 1995 to 97 and essentially corroborated what Heckler was saying. I mean, I don't think it, it worked historically like that. I don't know if they even referenced Heckler. It was just interesting. His work happened in, or his book happened in 1994 and then the ACE study happened after that and had similar findings of like these early traumatic events have lasting impact on your brain health, basically. Okay. And your body's ability to deal with stress. I don't know if that answers the question. What was Joel's <laughs> question was like, how would you, you know, what would you advise somebody that wants to embark in the, conversa- in the conversation? It. And it's like, start with your own experience and read some stuff around it. So those are yeah. two books. And then What Happened to You by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey oh, yeah. is awesome and one of the best current books or recent books that adds a whole neuroscience layer to everything that Heckler was observing just through um, you know case studies as a, as a therapist and then um, the adverse childhood experience study you know it was a sort of sociological study the neuroscience is built on top of that and really well well described through that book by Bruce Perry and Oprah there's a couple other books that Bruce has put out over the years that do a similar job You've actually used some of uh, Bruce Perry's work to make like the comic, right? With John Horner, the Why So Sad uh, comic video that we talked about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we, that's been a, a really rad collaboration. Really, the connection there is Joel, who just asked that question. Joel works at Whole Services in, right. in Calgary, Canada, in like an on-campus care program. He runs part of that. There's a program within Hull called Pathways to Prevention, and they they work with sort of at-risk youth. I imagine youth coming through the foster system and whatnot to help keep kids on a on a good path and give them some tools, or, you know, emotional and social tools to help them have a better chance at better outcomes. Yeah, yeah. And skating, push to heal, is his project that uses skateboarding as one of the the pieces of the puzzle, the pieces of the therapeutic yes. web, and he uses that to help kids basically learn how to learn I guess is part of it. Joel would be a good person to speak to to learn a bit more about the nuts and the bolts of what they do but Hull is um, connected with Dr. Perry and they use the neurosequential model as a basis of kind of how they approach their work so that was where all that connection came from and Joel Joel was one of the first people I heard talk about the neurosequential model and help me understand the order of operations in which the brain processes information and how how when the brain's developing the brain and the nervous system are and the endocrine system and all the rest of it are developing mm-hmm. when you're young yep the level and type of stress that you experience growing up sets the stage for then how your stress response works for yeah. the, not necessarily for the rest of your life because it can change over time the brain's malleable sure you know it doesn't necessarily change radically 
Or it doesn't, no, it doesn't necessarily change just of its own accord. You sometimes have to actually, like, make specific efforts to change it in a certain direction or not. Okay. Yeah, I was listening a few days ago. Joel did uh, an interview for another podcast. I don't remember what it's called, but um, the podcast is not about skating. It's about, uh, I think, education. And uh, he was talking about his program with Push to Heal and everything. And it was, uh, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. But basically, it was super interesting that everything I was talking about with the Adverse Childhood Experience Study was yep. then kind of corroborated and detail was added on by neuroscience. That's what I find fascinating. It really gives you a practical map, you know, to use to help navigate what it is that you're experiencing in terms of emotions because they yeah. emotions can feel pretty nebulous sometimes and, and getting some words and some concepts and some frameworks to help you kind of like zero in on what it is that you're feeling at any given time is really 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 helpful for sure it means you know it's, it's like switching a light on in the dark yeah and then there's new work we just did new work there's a little site that we put together called your brain on sport with a new comic oh. and so link to that in the description here people can check it out i'll put it in my link in bio and instagram which is uh, where you put things yes. these days <laughs> along with other places but uh your brain on sport was um done again in partnership with joel with bruce and with megan from the center for healing and justice through sport and some folks at nike sb and yeah check it out yeah 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 i haven't checked it out yeah i hadn't heard about it but uh, i'll definitely check it out and uh, yes the listeners will as well i'm sure yeah, I'll send, you, I'll send you the link after yes, this. Yes, please, please. Absolutely. Okay, the next one I have is from Kristen Ebeling from Skate Like a Girl. So she asked a couple of things. So she said, ask John about transitioning to working professionally at Nike post-skate career. And if he has advice to other folks out there who may be interested in doing the same and or changing careers in general. Um... That's a good question. It's one I don't really know how to answer because it's going to be different for everyone, like anything. Yeah. But if I think about it broadly, it was I found it really challenging and difficult. I hadn't particularly planned for the rest of my life beyond pro skating. That was the big goal as a as a kid. Sure. It's funny, right now I'm doing this sort of journaling exercise that I heard about on the Huberman podcast. And oh, yeah. the idea is to journal for like 15 to 30 minutes, just, you know, get all the thoughts out on a subject. You can do it on various subjects, but you do it four times for one subject. And this, the subject I've chosen right now is changing careers. Okay. So that's how hard it's, it was really, really turbulent emotionally going through it because i it was yeah yeah it was the end of a career that i'd wanted to be in since i was like 13 or 14 years old being a pro skateboarder without really a clear path of like what does the rest of life look like you yeah. know i didn't it's kind of like changing identities a little bit because i mean you base your life around being a pro skater which is an activity but it's also a lifestyle it's an identity and you have to kind of renounce that and not necessarily because you don't want to do it anymore but just because like you sort of can't or because you're just getting older or you you went through some injuries and your body can't really you know skate at the same level as you used to or something so there's a bit of a yeah that transition must be rough because you're changing identities and it's not necessarily something that you really want it's just something you need to do because you just you can't you know stay a pro skater forever you need eventually you need to do something else but yeah i mean you need to pay bills yes essentially <laughs> i think the best advice would be have backups outside of skating i you know i always stayed creative outside of skating i always 
was managing my own my own affairs as a pro skater, so I had transferable skills, mm-hmm. and I'd already at least completed a bachelor's degree, so I had that on paper. I had that on paper as that sort of like I've been through education to that level. Yep. So all of that kind of was helpful. I think if if you know that there's something that you're passionate about or you're feeling like a certain direction or in terms of vocation is if there is something that you you feel that you'd be good at then I'd say pursue that on alongside skating. Yeah. And I think people that become a pro skater is a real small proportion of of young people out there. Yes. Um I don't know if there's analogous paths that kids take beyond that but Becoming proficient at things that you can do beyond the age of 30 that can potentially provide an income is one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a hard question to answer. I wish I had a better answer for it. But I actually have a, another question from someone else after that is linked to this one, but we'll, we'll get to that one in a second. But uh, I just have a couple other ones from Kristen. Uh, she also asked, uh, what would you like to see change in skateboarding or in the world in general to better support mental health of individuals? Uh, yeah, the, yeah, the, it's like the more you look at things like what would be better in the world? What would I like to see change in the world? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know the answer to that. I just it's I don't know. Like people just learn more about it, be kinder to each other, make sure you've had a good amount of sleep, every single person. And I wish just we could all be kinder to each other. She asked the last thing. She said, ask him about his experience skating contests back in the day. He once told me a funny story about losing to Greg Lutzka. Well, that's when I got second at Tampa. Oh, okay. He, he got first? He got first, yeah. Okay. If there's a sto- I don't know. There's a few ways to look at that one. I was, I was pretty good at contests. I could str- especially if it was a contest where it was about string a line together. Yep. Rather than doing some big best trick off some massive set of stairs or hitting a big rail, like mm. um, I wasn't going to rack up points doing that, but I could put together a line. That's why Tampa lent itself. Well, it was always a fun contest to go to and see what you could do in one line. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some contest skaters are, have it all mapped out and planned out and have all their go-to tricks on lock, like Greg at the time. Mm-hmm. And some tend to like try and mix it up. Like, I just like to mix it up. And so I remember I put together a pretty solid run. And then like the last trick that I had time to do, like 10 seconds left, was heading backwards towards the little double set that they had um, set up there. And I remember being ready to switch flip it. Okay. Which was a much more guaranteed make. But it was like milliseconds, and I decided fakey heel would be radder. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I switched feet position for fakey heel. And I think I stuck it, but just wheel bit. Because, oh, okay. you know, then that was it. So I think that last trick just didn't allow didn't allow the judges to... Place you first? the win. But. Yeah, okay. And, yeah, that was that. But skating contests, super fun. I always liked it, like I said, especially if it was putting together a line. I remember it being pretty intimidating and scary at first mm-hmm. when I was young. I think to the point of some of the work that Joel does and some of the work that the neurosequential model has at its core, 
being involved in contests, I feel like from a young age, was something where I got to choose if I was going to be in the contest. So I had control over the level of stress that I would be under. And then, you know, I got to I got to learn to manage my own stress response through contests and at least learn how the stress response works mm-hmm. and get a sense of what it means to, you know, manage your own stress response. So that starts to give you some tools for managing your stress response when it's kicking off for reasons you haven't identified yet. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So that's me taking Kristen's question about skating contests and mapping it back to, and here's how, in retrospect, you know, things like skating and contests can be helpful when it comes to learning about mental health. Do you remember what year you did your first contest? Was that mid to late 90s, maybe? First contest? Uh, I think there was a couple of, like, super local Aberdeen contests at a skate park that was built in the exhibition center in the, I can't remember what time of year that was at, but that was when I would have been like 11 years old or 10 years old or something. Okay. But I can't really remember the feeling of, or if I even entered the contest there, I think I did. The first one I remember going to and being intimidated by was my mom, I think my stepfather Graham at the time, we drove down from Aberdeen all the way to Chelmsford near, somewhere near London. Chelmsford somewhere in the south of England. Mm-hmm. And there was a contest, but it turned out it was a vert contest, and I hadn't really skated vert before. Oh, yeah. So when it, when we showed up and I saw that people were like doing airs on a vert ramp, I realized I was out of my debt. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, I got, cho- I got to choose to not enter the contest at that point. So that was, that was fine. Didn't put myself through that. Mm-hmm. But there was contests at Livingston Skate Park that I remember doing pretty well at, so that gave us a bit of confidence. Yeah, those would have been the, the first ones growing up, Livingston stuff. Contest in Dundee, the first factory that they put, we, they called it the factory, the, the older skaters that built the little park in Dundee. That was pretty rad. Mm. I remember entering that. There was a little article about it in an early issue, in, in one of the issues of RAD magazine, or RAD. Yes. yes. RAD. <laughs> All right, let's do this next one from... uh, So I don't know if you know this guy, John Gardner. He was a pro skater until very recently. He skated for Creature Skateboards. Uh, He was skating for DC Shoes. I think he was the TM for DC Shoes. And he's been doing some work around mental health, kind of like you um, trying to raise awareness around mental health in recent years. And he's actually just stepped down from his activities at DC and as a pro skater to focus exclusively on mental health. And so I reached out to him to ask if he had a question for you. And so he said, stepping away from skateboarding as a career has in some ways mirrored the feelings of grief. Why do you think that is? And what can skaters do to prepare themselves for this often inevitable transition? Yeah, it's a good question. That's similar to what Kristen asked, I think, yeah. about transitioning the career transition, specific if you're a pro skater. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a really astute and interesting point about how the transition between, you know, life stages, if you like, is similar to the experience of grief. Yeah. God, if you really want to nerd out, there's a piece of work called the Kubler-Ross. I don't know if it's called the grief curve. I think that the Kubler-Ross change curve was based more on work done with people that were diagnosed with a terminal illness and Mm -hmm. the emotional process that is coming to terms with that so it's a curve from you know initial shock and denial to anger through to acceptance 
and it you know it doesn't the experience the one the one individual experience doesn't follow that curve exactly for everyone maybe ever because you like go back and you go forward and you're in different stages at different times but yeah i think the point was if you look at you know a big sample of of a bunch of people that are going through some sort of what we can call process of grief mm -hmm. then you end up like you end up sort of at some stage along the, the way experiencing each of the many of the points along that curve mm -hmm. and so yeah it's about transitioning and change and loss because you've like you said you've lost this old identity that you had built yourself up to consider yourself as this skater and now you have to find out who else this collection of of molecules that is the human body that you're in could be in the future yeah 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 so that makes it makes sense to think of it that way like grief you're processing loss and you're trying to find a new path and then advice again is have things that you can be good at that are not skating as well as skating yes and focus on those things that you find some joy in and you get something positive from that you could see yourself doing when you can no longer skate mm -hmm. well or no longer skate to the, to yes, the level at a pro level yeah either pro level or that you're even happy with yeah okay this next one is from kelly bird so kelly asked lately john has been spending a lot of time in a world i assume he never really imagined for himself hopefully he will have talked about it in some capacity so the question is what if anything from our world can he hindsight as tangible or intangible skills and experiences that have helped him in this new endeavor uh okay all right I think Bird is talking about just the fact I don't necessarily work directly on Nike SB and, you know, use all the, the knowledge of that world of skate culture, skate community in my day-to-day -day jobs that I'm tasked with. Mm -hmm. I've been working with a basketball team lately and, and doing the different bits and pieces with them. It's been super interesting. But the I think what's he saying, tangible and intangible skills. Yeah. I think some of this, some of the stuff that I learned from being involved in skating and involved in pro skating, that you wouldn't always like chalk up as something you might write on a resume, is came from just being in the tour van with the team for weeks on end every summer and like going out on filming trips basically as often as possible because you're always trying to work on on getting some photo or video clip for you know whatever multiple pieces of content that you're putting together for any of the brands you're working on right but you're working you're working and you're in a van with a bunch of kids from you know we're all kids but young people young youths in our teens and 20s mm -hmm. from the all variety of different backgrounds coming from all variety of different you know emotional places and just learning to get along with people no matter what and learning that we're all human beings at the end of the day and no one person's better than another like getting that sort of sense of we're all in this together mm -hmm. And having this idea that we're all in this together, trying to get after one goal, I think that's a really important life skill to get. Mm. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know if you just naturally get that in all paths in life. I don't, I don't think so. But I think that what I got from being a pro skateboarder and working with the team and yeah, just hanging out and meeting people where they are and getting to know each other, no matter where we're from, is is huge. Yeah.
Okay, I have this other one from... So this one is from Rob Mathewson from the Ben Ramers Foundation. Yeah. So it's from him and from the Ben Ramers Foundation in general. He just asked a pretty simple but I think interesting question. What does the Ben Ramers Foundation mean to you? Well, if there's two things. I think the fact that the Ben Ramers Foundation exists is unfortunate because we lost Ben and that's what happened that led to the formation of the Ben Ramers Foundation. Right. Unfortunately, I think... The same as what I've ever tried to do is taking something that on the surface is a tragedy and trying to make something, trying to make the world a better place through learning about why we ended up in that situation where Ben's taking his own life. Right. I think trying to make something positive and, and help us be better as a community is what the Ben Ramers Foundation means to me. And I think that the work that they do and the work that they've got done in a really quite a short space of time is phenomenal. Yes. And I think it comes from the drive of like Susie and Rob, who I, you know, interacted with the most from the foundation, just getting it together. And yeah, it's really good stuff. Yeah. So I think they, they put out a lot of good material and there's a lot of, you know, bite sized pieces of information that you can learn a little bit from and then go deeper if you want to, similar to what I try and do sure. with Why yeah. So Sad and, and hopefully with your brain on sport. All right, I have just a few last ones. This one is from Benson Kai. He said, if you could have any five people, past or present, join you on a bike ride, who would they be and why? Man, I don't, I, that, these are such hard questions. Yes. <laughs> it's like choosing people, I don't know. Benson's coming along. I want him using, I want to see if he can use his aero bars again. He had aero bars on the trip that we did down to the coast a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um... I don't, I don't know. It's hard to choose because sometimes the choice is like what makes most sense at the time and who's available is the choice because then they're they're there and they're available and they're not stressed out. I think I would do some I'd love to do something in Scotland and so my old friend Gary Brown would come along. Mark Foster, he came on a trip that we did when we rode from Glasgow to Edinburgh. His chain broke right next to J.K. Rowling's house, I think. In Edinburgh, oh wow, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so Mark come and I did a, a good cycle trip with my friend Clan, who's currently a biology teacher in France as well. Okay. But Clan should come, and so should Pigsy, because Pigsy doesn't really ride bikes, and he's an old friend who loves metal music and all types of music. And we did a ride. I call it a ride. We pushed our bikes a lot of the way along the West Highland Way in Scotland. Mm-hmm which is not really a bike path at all. It's more for hiking and like a little light bouldering. But Glenn seemed to think that we could easily ride it. And <laughs> I don't know if he ever said easily. <laughs> we did a trip there. That was fun. I don't know. Okay. There's there's a few. And I have this I have this um, this idea of going. There's an indoor vert ramp. In o- I think it's in Oban in Scotland called the Highland Hideout. And I want to ride bikes there and skate. That would be cool. That sounds like a fun trip. Yeah. Go do a couple sad plants or something up there. Yeah, at least one. When I was researching for this interview, I, uh, I didn't know that, but like pivots to fakie on ramps for our transitions, whatever they are, they're called maydays, right? Did I understand that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think some people, older people, older skaters might argue that the mayday had to be, you had to be grinding for it. Oh, but okay. 
that was never really that was never really confirmed whether it can just be a stalled pivot to fakey or grinding or actually grinding I, I don't know okay so I just took it as it can be stalled and that's fine and it's the mayday which is the request for help the yes. classic radio radio distress signal yes yes also became sort of symbolic of the mental health discussion certainly if you're getting to the point of being in some sort of crisis mm-hmm. asking for some sort of help is is a key critical step to take and then finding a way to kind of work through and process what it is that you're feeling at the time mm-hmm. that can often start with the f- a family doctor is a good place to start but yeah the mayday mm-hmm. request mm-hmm. for help okay so this one is from john horner your friend who made all the really cool uh, illustrations for the comic so he said apologies for being a bit basic but what is your favorite board graphic of all time and more importantly why oh man horner that's a good one that's not basic there's nothing basic about <laughs> john horner oh john horner should come on the trip too, the cycle trip uh-huh. so it's not just it can't just be five people benson it has to be just as many people as we as make sense at the time but john right. should come too Kristen should come too and scale like a girl. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. My favorite board graphic of all time. There's so many to choose from. Yeah. I can't remember what piece that was, but uh, a while ago I saw, I think, was it a, maybe a Skate Hoarders episode or, or something like that, where you um, you were holding your son in your arms and you were showing some of your boards in your garage or somewhere in your house. And one of the yeah. boards that you showed was a Toy Machine, a Non-Pleasures inspired drawing. For, I don't know if Ed Templeton did that one or someone else for Toy Machine. Do you know what, which board I'm talking about? I do. I have it. I don't know if it's... I think it's a great graphic. I think it's funny. Yeah. Um, and it's based on the, you know, the, the Unknown Pleasures Joy Division album cover. So that's right. a, an interesting one. Whether it's one of my favorites of all time, I don't know. It's on my wall because Diego was here and he had a package and couldn't travel with it. So they ended up in my house. <laughs> okay. So, so it's on my wall. Is it a Diego Pro model or is it uh, just a team? No, it was just a team toy machine board. Okay. One that, one that springs to mind, old graphics that spring to mind from when I was a kid, that's not necessarily my favorite. I don't know if I'd put it on my wall, but there was, Natus had a, I think Natus on 101 had a graphic that was just a crack pipe on the ground, and I thought that was pretty interesting because... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it always, it always kind of pops up in my head when I think of skate graphics as social commentary. And like that, yes. getting back to that whole idea of identifying with seagulls, you know, who are spending a lot of time surviving in the streets of our cities and the sort of output of humans at their when they're not at their best i think it was a that was a good representation using board graphics as a representation of that it reminded me of sort of in art history when the, the subject matter of art changed from like being all you know beautiful religious iconic imagery or images of like the elite to i think what would it be the post-impressionists like painting pictures of their friends in the bars in Paris and that became sort of the the subject matter of art became much more almost down to earth and real I thought that was a kind of cool use of graphics um, yeah so things like things like that I have some sort of interesting commentary or mm. I like but which one I don't know I heard about this graphic you just mentioned the crack pipe graphic I think I might be mistaken but I think it's Andy Jenkins that did that one. Oh, okay yeah That makes sense. Yeah, either him or maybe Sean Cliver or Mark McKee, but I, I think it's Andy Jenkins. I think I heard maybe, this yeah. uh, in his latest like Lion Club interview or something. Got it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it's not my. I, I don't know if that's my favorite because it's not really. Yeah. 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 Just something that came Pretty to mind. Uh, it comes to mind. Yeah. 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 Sure. 
Okay, then I have a few questions from Michael Burnett. He always comes up with some weird questions that I have no understanding of, but <laughs> hopefully you will understand them. So he said, talk about the famous American entertainer, Dart Dartman. Oh, right. I think my the way that I would speak when I first came to the United States, and maybe sometimes still, I'd speak pretty fast and with a bit of an accent. So I think I was talking about David Letterman. David Letterman. Yes, yes. And my, and Michael heard Dart Dartman. That's kind of <laughs> okay. How fast we were saying it. Okay, then he asked, under what circumstances should you drive it till it blows? Um... Under no circumstances should you drive it till, till it blows. If you recognize that there's something wrong with one of the tires on your minivan, then you should fix that problem immediately, you know, as soon as you can. That is the answer there. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Name three people outside of your family that should want in a post-apocalyptic survival setting. <laughs> oh, man, more of this name people uh, in a post-apocalyptic setting. I don't know, someone someone that can help me in the farm to grow some food, someone that can help me go and collect water, and someone that we can, you know, sit and play guitar and sing songs with. <laughs> cool. Uh, and his last question is, describe a time you were concerned for the safety of Div Adams. Oh, um, well, I mean, the last time I was concerned for the safety of Div was when Michael got in touch with me and said he was concerned with the safety of Div because it sounded like he was living a bit wayward at the time. So it's I think as far as I can tell, Div is, is doing well at the moment. He was back at his parents' house for a bit. But yeah, that would have been six months ago or something. I wasn't sure who Div was. Is he a former Zero writer as well? I'm not too sure. Like, what's the link between you two? No, Div is a skater from Carluke in Scotland. Oh, okay, he's from Scotland. Okay. Friends with Stu Gray, he's friends with Stu and well, and the Carluke crew, and he is a qualified plumber, and I think can do gas work too if you need some gas work done. <laughs> okay. um, can't remember if he got coded for gas or not, but uh, yeah, Div's an awesome ripper from Carluke who gets uh, is kind of part of the anti-hero crew a little oh, bit. Oh yeah, yeah, gets, okay. So I just have two last, very last questions. I was listening to your Bun interview from, I don't remember when that came out, maybe a year ago or something like that, a year and a half ago. They do the rapid fire at the end, you know, and they asked you what was your favorite video. And whenever they say that to a guest, it's uh, kind of assumed it's going to be a skate video that they're going to reference. But you actually said One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the movie with uh, Jack Nicholson. Mm. That is kind of focused on mental health because it's entirely filmed while the whole plot is in a, like a mental institute. So I, I just thought it was interesting that you you said that like kind of spontaneously. That's the first thing that came to mind. So I was wondering, like, what resonated so much in you with that movie? And do you remember maybe the first time you watched that movie? Because like that's quite an old one. I think it's from the maybe late 70s or early 80s around there. Uh, yeah, I think, I think funnily enough, Colin Kennedy and I watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at Mix Board Shop in Glasgow. I think it was at Mix. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first time I'd sat and watched it. It was in one morning when we were in there and there was not that many customers coming in in the morning. So we had some time. Yeah, and I think it's just a, an amazingly put together story mm. uh, based on the novel by Ken Kesey, who's I think from Oregon. I think everyone could probably get something from it. I think the 
part of one of the scenes that I think sticks in my head is always the scene when it represents McMurphy, R.P. McMurphy's character the best of like trying to just push back against the system that is oppressing us, if you like. And yeah. he goes to tr- he goes to try and like pick up the water fountain so that they can smash out the place. Oh yeah. And he says, you know, nobody else stepped up to try, and he said, well, at least I tried. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, sometimes getting up and trying is is the first step of the journey that we just need to take. Yes. Yeah, but I mean that performance by Jack Nicholson's amazing. The story, the story is amazing. The performances are all amazing. Um, yeah. And then I also really like the Princess Bride, which is different from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I just wanted to ask you this very last question. What would you say is kind of the most valuable lesson that you feel you've learned from skateboarding? I think we talked about it earlier. It's that we're all in this together and, you know, no one's better than anyone else here. We're all, you Mm. know, at the end of the day, skateboarding is the ultimate equalizer. And we're all going to, at some point, slam on our faces and have to get help from our friends. Perfect. Yeah, well, let's wrap it up here. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks so much for the time. Hopefully it was a good conversation. Hopefully somebody gets something useful out of it. Yes, I know I did, but uh, hopefully other people will as well. Yes, thank you, John. All right. Thanks, Quentin. Take care. That's it for my conversation with John. Follow him on Instagram at R-A-T-T underscore R-A-Y. Go watch and rewatch some of his classic video parts in the Blueprint and Zero videos, among many other ones. Make sure to go watch the Why So Sad comic video about skateboarding and mental health made in collaboration with John Horner for Nike SB. Lastly, and in the same vein, go check out John's latest initiative called Your Brain on Sport, which we talked about briefly on the dedicated website ybos.nikesb.com. Thank you for tuning in. See you soon for a new episode of Beyond Wars.